0: The Knowledge Sessions. Welcome to another podcast from RCVS Knowledge, where our mission is to advance the quality of veterinary care for the benefit of animals, the public, and society. I'm Lara Karim, and our subject today is antimicrobial resistance, or AMR. Antimicrobial resistance was named one of the 10 biggest threats to global health by the World Health Organization in January 2019. So what is the state of play with prescribing in the UK? What measures are in place and what is working? What research is needed to gain robust evidence about the best way of tackling AMR? Should we regulate? What can we learn from other countries' approaches? And who is responsible for bringing about change? To answer all these questions and hopefully some more, I'm delighted to welcome a panel of experts chaired by the UK Chief Vet Me Officer, Christine Middlemiss. Before her appointment in 2018, she was the Chief Veterinary Officer for New South Wales, Australia for nearly two years where she led major improvements to biosecurity across many farming sectors. This work included implementation of new outcome-focused risk-based biosecurity legislation, online animal certification processes and improving evidence and risk-based disease control approaches. Christine is an experienced veterinarian having worked in private practice with a specific interest in research, meat processing and livestock genetics for a number of years in Scotland and the north of England. Thank you, Christine, and all our guests for being here today.
1: Thank you, Lara. Well, we all recognise AMR as being um, a wicked problem, as our Chief Medical Officer has described it. Um, she sees the impact of it um, globally as being as huge as climate change, in that it will be a global impact and it will impact on each and every one of us, potentially. So it's great to be able to discuss it today, and with me, we have a number of experts who will ask to introduce themselves.
2: Uh, my is Ian Battersby, I'm a RCBS and European Specialist in Internal Medicine. I had been internal medicine department at Davey's veterinary specialist and in 2011-2012 I conceptualised the Protect Antibiotic Scheme and led the group of vets who developed that BSAVA SAMSOC initiative.
3: Hi, I'm David Singleton, I'm a uh, postdoctoral epidemiologist working with the Small Animal Veterinary Surveillance Network, short is SASnet, at the University of Liverpool. I did my PhD looking at antimicrobial prescribing and resistance surveillance in companion animals And I'm lucky enough to continue that work with uh, SASNET for the future.
4: I'm Kristen Ryer. I'm a reader in veterinary epidemiology and population health. And I lead an interdisciplinary research team looking at antimicrobial resistance, stewardship and use at the Bristol Veterinary School.
5: I'm Steve Howard, um, presumably representing the the first opinion practice um, around the table. Um, Head of clinical services at PDSA. Um, responsible for clinical standards um, and ensuring compliance with expectations and regulations um, that surround the profession. Quite a number of our activities have been on antimicrobial resistance, um, and I've also been working closely with RUMA, who have done a lot of work in the large animal field, around whether we could or should establish a companion animal division of the same group.
1: Great, thank you. So we have a broad range of experience on AMR around the table with us today. Let's kick off with some of the questions we've been asked to think about. Firstly, what is the state of play regarding antimicrobial prescribing in the UK, from your perspective, and what are the drivers? Now we've heard, um, obviously there's a lot of expertise around the table, which means there's a lot of thinking being going on in this space already, Um, so interested to hear something about that and where you think we are at the moment. (laughs)
3: Off. I
5: think, hey. <laughs> well, <laughs> if, if, we're, if we're talking um, companion animal, um, then I think part of the silence around the room might reflect that there is no consistent um, mm-hmm. view of what the state mm-hmm. of play of prescribing animals. Southsnet have done some very good work on the frequency um, of prescribing occasions. that did some a few years ago, but, but what is probably... Missing is that consistent view of what what trends there are in prescribing behaviors around the country
4: I think we might have a bit more knowledge about what 's going on in the livestock sectors yes. because we 've seen yeah. big changes over the past few years in the livestock sectors um, and obviously antimicrobials are prescribed by veterinarians so mm. that 's coming back to the prescribing <clears throat> excuse me some of that has been Um, led by the industries themselves, British Poultry Council saying we're going to really reduce this, the pig industry, pork industry, the cattle industries, to say we want to take a good hard look at what we're doing with antimicrobials and be great stewards of these medicines and really being able to reduce that. So we have that on a a national level, we can see that. On a species level, we're, we're gaining the data to be able to have more information about that. And obviously the vets have been very involved in that.
5: Yeah, but of course you have the measures in yeah. place. And like, targets set for those industries as, and, well, and yeah, as well. And that, that's is, a big difference to, uh, to us in the companion animal world. Yeah. Right. So if we look at where we were 10 years ago,
2: think it's very different i mean when we started drafting the protect guidelines i used to talk about it lots of vets just w- it wasn't on the radar mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and now you talk to them and it's very much on the radar and one of the things that's been really encouraging is that certainly new graduate vets you can see it's part of undergraduate training now so there are a lot more on this which is absolutely fantastic but the challenge is now everybody's aware of it but we've got to change habits Yeah, you know, and everybody talks a good game but when you're faced in that individual situation and it's your responsibility and you've been used to using antibiotics just in case, you've got to use them when they're indicated. You know, this is one of my areas, that, one of my soapboxes, but I still find myself in an ICU with a case going, well, I know that I should just use this. In the past, I've used this and this. So it's a big ask you know, to change your habit. Mm-hmm. We're getting there, but we've got to work out ways to kind of back up vets on the front line and support them in that, that decision making you know, with owners and, and colleagues as
5: well. Um, in my experience, it's, it's a culture change yeah. rather than a process. Yeah, yeah, so you, you can't, if you just tell people to do to prescribe less, it doesn't mean a great deal, and it no. doesn't drive different behaviours. So you have to change that approach. Yeah. it it's being
4: brave in that i think and and having being able to showcase people that have done that yeah. or being able to show you don't need that yeah. antibiotic yeah. in that case and just having the bravery to step out and yeah. do something it's, it's so a bit it's, different c- can we
1: reflect then um talk a bit about what's happened in the farm animals and then mm. thoughts about how we might get to that Situa- not the same situation, but how we might help people with what the drivers are on small animals. I'd like to explore that more. So in the um, farm animal sector, following Lord O'Neill's report um, on the publication of the UK five-year antimicrobial strategy, an overall target for sales of antimicrobials in animals was put in place. But government didn't say to industry this is how you've got to do it and yeah, this yeah. is the target you've got to yeah. reach which was quite unusual compared to other countries industry completely bought into the need to yeah. do something about it and have really owned this working yeah. across the sector from farmers vets um scientists and so on and i think for me the key has been people understand how their farms run and how their businesses run and vets understand what they, their decision-making process when they go there. And so everybody's bought into the overall we want to get there but have their own tools and levers about how to do it and that has proven to be really effective. In the small animal world, of course, it's even more complicated because it's individual pets, it's individual animals often that you're thinking about. Any thoughts then on how we might work on getting consistency of approach, but still doing that individual care?
3: I think that what we know about the drivers of prescribing in companion animals Mm -hmm. is quite complex, it's quite multifactorial, and it ranges from the individual animal, the presentation, to the vet, to the owner, to maybe a practice policy or even wider, um, which in some ways might be quite disheartening, but in another, it provides opportunities to really Work at multiple levels, and I think rather than it's perhaps an element of a personal opinion having a target, I don't, mm. I'm not convinced mm. I would work in Japan animals. No. But what we might be able to work towards is more targeted use mm. to uh, towards actually provide the evidence and the confidence mm. of particularly first opinion practitioners to be able to act in the best interest of the animal and know that they're acting in the best interests
5: and in the small animal because it is. Quite often on a one on one basis, those decisions are made. It's chipping away at the totals that we use as well. The example in the UK five year action plan, our five year action plan, of a pig farm where they quartered the use of their antibiotic use by approaching an entire herd of sows by by a really significant amount in one go, whereas we can't do that in the companion animal world. We have to have it in mind every time we we have a, a pet and their owner. I am in front of us. Yeah.
1: But then the owner book really interests me because obviously yes. I do a lot of speaking with medical colleagues, both to them about what we're doing in the animal world, but also with them in terms of a One Health approach. And it strikes me that you're talking about that owner who may be one of us, who is also a patient. The drivers are different to degree, but there's something about joining up the narrative and the language you use. And yeah. so, that, yeah. so yeah. that expectation, whether you're going to your doctor or you're taking your doctor yeah. to vet similar.
2: I mean there's, a, there's an element of consistency in, in, across the practice because you get you make get one vet who adopts a good stewardship, and then if an owner sees another vet that doesn't adopt the same approach, that completely undoes all that, that messaging. I mean, in an ideal world, I mean for me, antibiotic stewardship is closely linked to infection control. So every practice should have somebody leading infection control. So that individual should also be an antibiotic guardian, promoting the advantages of using them actually more sparingly. That's what I love. You know whether we can achieve that. I think I think there's lots of ways of engaging the profession. We've got if you look at all the different areas in companion animal, you've got lots of different organisations producing guidelines, which is fantastic. If anything, I'm a little bit worried. There's too many messages going out. Yeah, um, yeah. So it'd be fantastic to engage with large groups and get more on the one. Roof, there I say it? One, you know, I know there's the large groups of practices that are linking together. I'm not going to enter the debate of the pros and cons of that, but one of the advantages is that we can get a consistency across that large group. You know, so inviting them all round tables, getting a consistency of message in all of those areas could be. A, 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 be, a very powerful thing
4: and how that's, about using the data in a way yeah, of yeah. benchmarking so yeah. we all like mm. a little bit of competition yeah, <laughs> and clearly yeah. we're looking at as you said infection control and we want yeah. good disease control yeah. and good curing of infections yeah. etc but being able to say and that's been done in the livestock sectors exactly. as well so let's see how your farm is doing against your farm yeah. what how can you make those changes yeah. and yeah. then how did you go about that so in yeah. our practice we changed prescribing at the vet school we did things like we labeled our shelves green yellow and red and the protected antimicrobials went on the top
5: Mm. shelf
4: where you needed to go and find a stepladder to get up there to reach (laughs) them now how hard is it to find a stepladder and while you're doing that and hunting around and cursing to yourself you're saying do I really need this or could I go with something that is at eye level or something that's easy to reach so I think the behavior changes little things like that Um, Can make a big difference having an antibiotic guardian, having a champion in your practice that is kind of looking over your shoulder, but that you think in your head, oh, if I use this prophylactically, David would say, (laughs) 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 might just put you off enough to say, well, I'll just try with this one.
2: I think you touch on a really good point in that you know there's going to be a lot of people in companion animal work that are not aware of the fantastic. You know, I was reading a little bit about all the the work in the the chicken industry. I mean, Mm, they've made a massive impact. And I know that's slightly different because you've got a smaller pool of vets... That's something that Mm. the companion animal side is aware of. What can it be achieved? You know, like you say, it's the competitive edge. Well, Mm.
5: you should be able to achieve that. It's the old nugget of sharing best practice or or good experience, isn't it? And that is one of the reasons that we started talking to the rumour guys. In terms of
1: let me explain rumour for Um, people that are. (laughs) (laughs) Rumour is the Responsible Use of Medicines and Animals Alliance. Um, Sometimes people just stop at animals or so on, but that's what it is. It's chaired by an industry, um, an experienced industry person, and as I said, it's made up of a group of industry representatives with some VET input, VMD is the government input, and they have a scientific advice committee and things, and it has, um, I'll talk a minute about some of the changes they have successfully achieved in the area, but it has proven really successful as a collaborative group to make. I think changes happen.
5: It has, and I think underpinning what you were saying now, you can make them awkward to get antibiotics, mm-hmm. you, can, you can label them, but underpinning all that is, is that evidence and the, the protocols. We've introduced a few at PDSA that we've then shown have have worked and, and achieved what we wanted to, but it stays where it is, all that good experience. So, so part of the reason for us starting to talk with Rumour was how can we share this and, and bring some of the great BSAVA work. And, and the BVA work that's been done, yeah. and lots of other groups, and pull it all into one place. Not not trying to necessarily rebrand it as, as yeah. rumor, but but just have one place for antimicrobial. Yeah, it's picking guidance, up an Ian's point that there's so Absolutely. much
1: information out there. Yes,
5: yeah. and, and and by disparate groups, and it comes together a little bit towards the end of the year for European Antibiotic Awareness Day, and and the One yeah. Health approach because the the medics, Public Health mm-hmm. England, get involved mm-hmm. in that too. But well, that is a, a relatively short lived. Phenomenon, shall we say? I think probably what's, what could help that culture change is, is constant. Yes, yeah. and reminders coming from that kind of group. Or yeah, or we know group. that you
1: have to think
4: about changing your behaviour a certain number of times
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. before it becomes and be reminded it to do so. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
5: yeah.
4: And I think one thing we struggle with in the veterinary community that the medics have on us is they have more evidence yeah. about urinary tract infection. Mm-hmm. How long is the is the shortest course that you can go for? They really have yeah, yeah. good studies, well powered studies that have that nice guidelines. And we don't have that so much yeah. in the veterinary profession, but we should be able to develop those sorts yeah. of things for common ailments that we see in common species of animals. And then you can have the confidence that right the numbers say this yeah. one dog that I'm looking at shouldn't need this antibiotic. Yeah. Watchful waiting or or a delayed prescription, <clears throat> as the human medics are doing, and then you're getting the same message from yeah. your doctor that you're getting from your vet.
3: I think the delayed prescription point there is really interesting areas to pick up on as well as the no prescription. So in the Small Animal Medicine Society recently released a no prescription PET that will essentially say your dog as far as I remember is vomiting and diarrhoea. At the moment I don't think antimicrobial is necessary but come back if you're concerned or if X, Y and Z occurs. I think it, it sort of fulfills that need to provide something to the client. Yeah. Um, and the I client seems
1: validated that they had a genuine and concern.
3: And it also, you know, the part of it is that,
2: you know, he's got all the, the the things to monitor for if things do not go well, yes. but mm. part of it as well is it allows the, the practitioner to say, well, look, I'm saying this and look, I'm backed up by mm. this organisation yeah. who's produced yeah. this guideline. So it's just giving them a little bit of more mm. confidence in that scenario, you know, that there's, there's an organisation who feels this and they're being backed up, you know, Mr. Smith has given antibiotics for this problem for the last 20 years and actually you don't
3: need to. Yeah. So. I guess it might be nice in the future that um, that the sort of a reputable organisation has put that forward, mm. but perhaps there'd be a list of reputable organisations yeah. all underneath Umbrella it. underneath
2: Absolutely. It, yeah. I mean, it'd be lovely to have everybody on that backing it up. It'd yeah. be fantastic. But coming back to the duration of courses, I think that's a, a massive area that, you know, which you look into I mean as you quite rightly point out the human medicine they're doing a lot of work looking at shorter courses in um, community acquired pneumonia halving the duration
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know if you look at a lot of the veterinary courses that are in all the textbooks when I was doing I originally wanted to put all the durations in the guidelines but there's no evidence to back them up the only thing you can notice is that they're either multiples of five or multiples of seven, you know, <laughs> 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 yeah. easy, to yeah. 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 easy to remember and complete. So there's fantastic opportunity. I I've just been doing a project with a, a first opinion practitioner on cat bite abscesses. Yeah. You know, very simple observational study. And we're just finishing it off now. It's really cool. It's kind of, you know, that, that's a that's a condition that in a lot of practices now treated with 10 days of antibiotics, putting drains in and stuff. And we've, gone back old school, you know, managing it with lavage and stuff, and it's shown some really nice results. So there's very common, kind of almost low-hanging fruit Mm. in your
5: first opinion practice. I think you're absolutely right, and that's where where we've focused as well. So trying to find those durations, we've found exactly the same issues. So one of our protocols focuses on the conditions that present that shouldn't be given antibiotics at first presentation, and that then takes away... That group, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. suppose, and then yeah, yeah. we can start to address, if you do choose yeah. to give antibiotics, how long you should give it for might be the next area of work for us. Well, that was some of that low-hanging fruit in yeah. the mm. bite abscesses, kennel cough, yeah. um, urinary tract keep diarrhea. problems, um, yeah. diarrhoea. We've just said, you don't need to give them antibiotics yeah. unless yeah. they're showing certain signs, yeah. in which case you can consider it. And, yeah. and that's landed pretty well um, yeah. when, when we've done tests on kennel yeah. cough, being diagnosed for example and whether that got antibiotics at the time it was 85 percent compliance i think across yeah. our 48 hospitals and 400 350 yeah. 400 vets so if you back up with evidence and and, mm. and, and and get it out there in the right way i think it yeah. can it can yeah. be done
2: and the, the key like you say I, I read a, a review over the weekend over it was based in sweden where they were reviewing all the guidelines they did and one of the important things that came out was, you know, that if you're writing a guideline, you've got to have strict strict criteria to fulfill that. So, you know, don't give the antibiotics in diarrhea if this, this, and this is happening, mm. you know, because otherwise it's just like Warning systems, around, uh, these sort yeah, of things. There's, yeah. there's, there's, there's always exceptions. And, yes. and, you know, even when you look at some of the other models in other countries, they've evolved. You know, they've started mm. changing it, making exceptions in certain scenarios, because you can't be too prescriptive. Because if you go the other way, then you don't do your job and... You know, patients suffer.
5: If you yeah. say 100%, you're, you're going to be disappointed yeah. in, the, yeah. in the outcome, um, and what you're potentially doing is putting some clinicians at, at risk mm. of that approach of, I never a- can give antibiotics to this. There will be some cases where mm. it should be given. But then you, you, get you, you get a
4: consistency of messaging, don't you? So yeah, now we you know, if yeah. I have a cold, I don't go to my doctor to get antibiotics, because I've heard that a yeah. number of times. So you get that consistency, which also gives the clients some confidence And the work that I'm aware of says, you know, vets feel pressure. We feel in ourselves. Mm -hmm. This client really wants some antibiotics. They really want me to give some antibiotics. GPs feel the same. But actually, when you ask the client do you want did you come here to get antibiotics they say no no i trust the vet whatever the vet thinks is the best thing for me and if the vet is backed up by evidence and really thinks it's Mm. they don't need it Mm. and the gp is the same so we can have that confidence to say yeah we Mm. know you don't really need Mm. it and hopefully that then gets Mm. to the it's not the consumers it's not the Mm. clients that want it as much as we might feel like Mm. they do i think think there's something in it about us clinical vets validating our so you You want to prevent
1: any welfare impact disease. And so that's the way culturally we've we've started to deal
4: with that. Mm. But
1: you're right, if the evidence validates you doing something else, and it's changing the mindset to say, I've prevented um, potential increased antimicrobial resistance, there are still other options if this animal is not improving.
3: I think there's probably a space for bite-sized education for clients, So I Mm -hmm. think that conversation in the consult room where a client requests antibiotics and you try to say, actually, I don't think it's necessary, can still be quite difficult uh, to, I don't want to use the phrase, win, but almost to convince the client. And having that sort of accessibility to resources that to actually XYZ. Yes, uh, and
1: sometimes that's one of the things I, two things I constantly remind our medical colleagues of. One veterinary practices are all individual businesses or, or you mm. oh, they're part of a bigger mm-hmm. bit but they're businesses they're not nhs yes. funded yeah. and that's why we all have different it systems and things yeah. like that because I'm saying, why can't you just yeah. pull all your data
3: from a southern perspective yeah, yeah it's, that's, that's a, problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a daily problem i think that's why you know david's work in
2: particular is really, yeah. really useful because we're all time poor you know mm. and yes. We're doing some work at the moment where we want to just set up some very basic audits in some of our practices, just get them to look at ten consultations. But I know that will be really well done in some practices, and in others, it's like, I haven't got time for that. Whereas David's you know, work's going to take that. Well, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully it's kind of evolving that and providing yeah. that information.
1: Do, do you want to talk about David about what you are currently working on then?
3: Um, essentially, um, it's providing that. Southampton is a selection of. Two to three hundred practices in the UK, uh, roughly split between independent practices and large group, corporately owned, not quite sure if that phrase is good or not, but I'm just <laughs> going to use it anyway. Um, the practices, and we collect their electronic record data from the practices management system and monitor all sorts of disease trends. But my primary interest, of course, is antimicrobial prescribing. We also have a component that uh, collects records from laboratories. So we're starting to look at clinical resistance trends as well. And we think that the idea of joining these two together and uh, at least in prescribing starts to shine a window back at the practitioner. Mm. Something that happens of, uh, quite frequently we talk to practitioners, they say, okay, my prescription is fine, it's okay. And then you can sort of shine the benchmark back at them and go, mm. what do you think now? Yeah. Uh, and we try to actually not prescribe judgment in that respect. If we understand that every practitioner has an individual situation, but mm. Mm. they're best placed to reflect on their own clinical practice.
1: So how do practitioners that are not currently using the system either access any information from it or indeed provide information into it?
3: Um, at the moment, funnily enough, we're talking about practice okay. management systems. So we work with two practice management systems. We would like to work with more. Uh, and at the moment, this is a technology. So um, essentially, there's a... Um, a feed into the practice management system, the PMS, that uh, enables HealthNet to start collecting data with with the owner's consent. I should say, at the moment, that's limited. That there has to be a one practice management system at the time, uh, and of course, with there being so many PMSs in the UK, that's a bit of a slow process. <laughs> but we're, hope- we're hoping that you know things like AMR actually will start to
5: make PMS providers realise the value of sharing data and bringing it together. Yeah, yeah. Therein does lie a slight issue, I suppose, in the, in the current state of affairs in that practices, depending sometimes on which practice management system they have, are either feeding into the SASnet system or, or the Vet Compass mm-hmm. system. And your ideal, I suppose, would be that data from both of those yeah. um, would be pulled together to give us that that nationwide view of how practices are behaving and what the prescribing is. So it's one of the conversations we've been having as we start to try and develop this rumour in terms of what what data sharing, I don't think it's happened in the past between the two, but, but to try and encourage that, I suppose, if we okay. can. I think that's one of the things we've got to watch for,
2: And that everybody's recognising this is a big issue, but we can very quickly find ourselves repeating work that mm, other people have yeah. done. And, and not just confusing the message but spending a lot of time on stuff that's been done elsewhere yeah. we just do it together It's, yeah. um, it, it's a so funny,
3: um, sorry
1: On that, I want to, you touched in already um, on some other country systems what what are other countries doing um, and what can we learn from them and
2: think about? Okay. Um, I mean, not aware, just to you too yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I mean, I'm only aware of, 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 of general trends in Sweden and Holland, yeah. they're the main that I'm aware I've got friends who work in Sweden, uh, friends who work in Holland. But in S- in Sweden, I know that the um, Swedish veterinary regulator produced guidelines uh, many years ago, actually. They really went mm-hmm. from the forefront. I don't think there's any legislation around that. It's, it's it's voluntary compliance. And from chatting to my colleagues in Sweden, they say one of the frustrating things is that some practices adopt the guidelines rigorously. You know, they they don't prescribe the loans without any cultures but then mm. there's other practices that don't you know so in that you can see that they're obviously getting s- some good engagement with some people but then there's the mm. mopping up mm. um, and that's the challenge I guess with voluntary guidelines in yeah. Holland the, the Dutch model I know there's a lot more re- legislation I know a lot of that focuses on farm animals mm. from a companion animal there's the re- uh, fluoroquinolone loan restrictions and they've also if I understand correctly they've banned the use of carbapenins pens and glycopeptides, and mm-hmm. um, even you know, on the cascade, which is, I guess, everybody has different views about legislation. But I mean, I I feel very uncomfortable about using those drugs in in the patients that we see. We have COVID, you know, we have this debate all the time. You know, there's some large vet schools that have infection control committees that will only allow those drugs to be used once it's been passed. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're a valuable resource mm-hmm. that we should really treat very mm-hmm. respectfully. Yes. So. Whether that evolves in the UK or not, I don't know. But certainly chatting to the, my Dutch colleagues, they say that it was very well received you know, on the whole. They didn't actually do a lot of campaigning to kind mm-hmm. of make everybody aware. It was you know, the, the veterinary profession was aware of all the issues with, I think it was MRSA, I think, in, in pigs, contact with pig farmers mm-hmm. that alerted them. And um, everybody adopted, there were fines if you didn't comply with it. But certainly you can see the evidence in that the, the antibiotic prescribing dropped considerably, And also, I think the monitoring of resistant profiles has changed quite a lot for the better. Mm. So they are a great kind of beacon. Um, It's probably a bit more, I don't want to use the word aggressive, just with Mm. legislation rather than asking people to engage, but they they took more of a a firm So it's
1: something I get asked about constantly from other countries in the farm animal space we haven't regulated. Uh, And primarily that's been driven by the um, will of industry to tackle Mm. this antimicrobial prescribing is in a number of the assurance schemes and you have to be a member of the assurance schemes to market yeah. your animals and so there's that implicit driver anyway and things but we know legislation is a tool to help people you know when the mass majority have taken action yeah. but we're let down by the people that aren't and do that but I'm uncomfortable at how it would yeah. work in terms of actual practices and yeah. how on earth
4: you would still know what was going on Mm -hmm. and who was doing what uh, what by scrutiny of records and things. So I think the Dutch invested quite a lot into their systems so that they had systems that could collect all that data put it together so you don't have pockets of disparate data in different places. But even locally, and as you were saying, you can look at what you're doing, Mm. you can look across your practice. If there's six or eight vets in your practice or 68 vets in your practice, somebody's job or someone who likes playing with numbers can do that and Mm. kind of see, oh, how am I doing? How is David Mm. doing? How is Christine doing? And see and then say, oh, David, you really managed to not treat any diarrhea cases with antibiotics. (laughs) How did you do that? And yet your recovery rates are just the same. You didn't have any dogs get sicker, etc. So tell us your best practice. And I think there's something for that. There's also maybe something in the the bite-sized conversation in talking about the downsides of antibiotic use. There can be side effects that can be quite bad. You're wiping out natural flora by using these medicines. So talking about... The problems that we have with that as well is they're not always just perfect, wonderful things that we want to use. It's not just resistance that's an issue, although it is an increasing issue. There are other reasons why we might not want to use that. So here's some vitamins or here's, you know, rehydration solution.
3: It's interesting. We were chatting before before we started um, and the whole natural animal argument is sometimes a bit of a course of rolling your eyes within, within the consultation, but actually... when it comes back to biotics, you wonder whether you could use that healthy animal, Mm. holistic, dare I say it. It's a viral
4: infection.
3: Your Mm -hmm. animal is
4: immunocompetent. They should be able to get better on their own.
2: And you just remind me of an abstract that was presented at uh, ECVM, I think about 18 months ago, where somebody, uh, I can't remember the institute, but they gave, you know, you know, some routine antibiotics to dogs that were healthy and monitored them for a couple of weeks and they had GI side effects yes you know, so GI signs now mm. we normally go oh it's just a primary disease that's why they're you know why they've vomited or that's what but this showed that actually you know if you think about it in humans you know all the C diff diarrheas and yep. things we don't really recognize that um, or talk about yep. that in, in, in yet <laughs> in, in dogs and cats but it's a known quantity in humans yep. so why are we not picking it up you mm-hmm.
4: know. and what's that doing for transmission between us yeah. and our animals and our families because the other thing antibiotics is it kills that normal flora so it makes you a bit of a hoover a vacuum cleaner mm. for anything bad that's around you and that's mm. sometimes how you can pick up a resistant infection yeah. so it's putting them at risk yeah. from a number of different ways do you think there's
1: a role for the role collagen us uh, and or more specifically the rcvs knowledge
4: that we're doing today in all of the debate and
1: progress I think our knowledge has
4: done quite a lot on mm-hmm. auditing, really pushing that and providing tools mm-hmm. to be able to do that very well so that you can use those data and to look at your own practice and benchmark your own practice. I think the evidence-based stuff we talked about as well, so evidence-based veterinary medicine, the fact that sometimes we don't have much of an evidence base, mm-hmm. how do we create that? How do we get practitioners that are very busy, mm-hmm. but they are the ones that are out there touching those animals that have that data? How do we get them to record that a bit better Start projects like looking Mm -hmm. at cat bite abscesses, looking at kennel cough, looking at Mm -hmm. pneumonia and coughing calves. You know they see Mm -hmm. that they have that data. So how can we envelop that and get the evidence by them? And RCBS knowledge does a lot of that sort of Mm -hmm. work.
2: We've talked about all the individual messages going out from all the different industries. The RCBS could be uh, an organisation that tries to bring everybody together, you know, and, and kind of spreads the good work that everybody's done. I think it'd be interesting. I don't know whether other people would agree. Um, for maybe the RCBS knowledge to survey practitioners about you know their, their views on um, signing up to voluntary codes, even ask their opinion about the Dutch model where they've mm-hmm. you know they banned the use of you know carbon and things like that. This you know see what the the appetite for that kind of thing out there is. Um, mm-hmm. But then also I, th- I think in the practice standard schemes that the RCBS do, I think. I believe there's more they could do. You know, there's, there's certainly points you can get for evidence of um, antibiotic stewardship education mm-hmm. material in the practice. But you know, there's good evidence showing that if you have an antibiotic prescribing policy in a practice, appropriate use improves and mm-hmm. on the, on inappropriate use mm-hmm. um, decreases. So, I think that should be part of the hospital standard scheme. You know, I would love it if they could say you have to have an ad- antibiotic guardian and show evidence yeah. at mm-hmm. auditing. But you know, that's the sky even if we just
5: had evidence of stewardship in a practice mm. I'm sure that would start making impacts. I think the RCBS knowledge could add credibility to evidence that is produced so there's been a lot of focus on practice derived evidence as well and, and RCBS knowledge sharing some of that and rubber stamping it almost where it is good would, would probably add a lot of credibility to that and, and potentially increase in the uptake as well as the practice standard skins there's obviously the Code of Professional Conduct, which yeah, yeah, reflects um, <laughs> that um, veterinary surgeons should, should prescribe antibiotics responsibly. And um, that's, I suppose, a bit of a difference between the legislation and regulation. Mm-hmm. And, and how do those two sit next to each other and how would that be received my mm. profession, if that regulation mm. element were to be uh, were to be beefed up, I don't have the answer to that. But it's something to to think about. Yeah, isn't it? The practice standard scheme is still voluntary. Yeah. So those practices that sit there and go, well, I'm not going to bother with this antim- mm. antimicrobial resistance stuff. I'm not going to introduce mm. any protocols. Are probably the ones that aren't on the practice standards scheme mm-hmm. anyway. So you're still yeah, going to have the, that that yeah. nut to. and probably crack. not
1: contributing to that. I'm probably not <laughs> contributing yeah. to any yeah. data.
5: Mm-hmm. So it's how how you how you get the in to those practices yeah. or individuals um, that, yeah. that aren't engaging with it, yeah. or the that's clients
1: to start creating demand through mm-hmm. you know through them. well yeah. it would be
5: really exciting if though if we could
3: develop a, a business case for stewardship. You know, that actually. Yeah. This is um, something that a practitioner would look for. Because I know we've got a practice standard scheme, but maybe there's a way of mm-hmm. adding to that. So it's a bit of a vague thought at the moment. But uh,
4: And how about? publicising vets that are doing that really well, practices that are doing that very well, having those champions be more visible because we know when there's a bad news story, everyone reads about who got struck off, you know? But actually, how much better to read about, wow, this practice reduced their usage by this much and still has good animal health and welfare measures, still had gained clientele, which is what we found in our practices, (laughs) wasn't lost it to other people, we're being progressive, we're being proactive, and look, people want to come to us, so that's the business case. So pick out that. So you glean clientele, but you are reducing your antibiotic use.
1: How were your clients aware of that? The clients, was it word of mouth? Did
4: you talk about it? Yeah, how did it happen? Yeah, just talking about it with other clients. This was in the farming community mainly, Mm -hmm. and so farmers talked to other farmers. People had heard about it on the news. They'd heard about Mm -hmm. it at the hospital. They were a bit worried, and they said, Mm -hmm. oh, I want to go to a vet that is actively working on this and wants to do things in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was that was what we were known for. So people said, oh, I, I'm, I'm interested. My vet didn't really want to engage. This was a few, quite a few years yeah. ago, but I want to work with somebody, you know, I had a baby who was in the NICU that had a resistant infection or a mm. grandparent or whatever. And I really don't want to be part of that problem. I don't think we need these antibiotics and maybe I can I can be a bit braver. And you start to yeah. collect those sort of clients as well, which Is that, it all forward. I presume
2: that's focusing on husbandry systems and things like that. Yeah. So, I presume there's impact as well on welfare of the the animals as well, so you tie that all together. Yeah,
4: and we showed that by Mm. not using any of the fluoroquinolones, third and fourth generation cephalosporins, that actually our health and welfare parameters stayed the same or got better. So you can do that via management, and then you don't need them. And I kind of agree with you, I I, I don't really want to see them banned, Mm. because there may be resistant infections that you might want to be able to Mm. treat, but we typically don't need them. So, that and having right. done that in our own practice gave us the confidence to say, farm animal community, you right. don't need these and your right. animals will be fine. And right. now it's part of the assurance standards. Yeah. And without a culture yeah. insensitive, you can't get them. But yeah. without that basis of evidence yeah. and that confidence to say, look, we tried this, watching what the Dutch did at the same yeah, sort yeah. of time that they did it, they were fine, we were fine, yeah. your animals are going to be fine as well. Awesome. Then that makes a big difference. Yeah.
5: I suppose that reassurance that. That veterinary businesses bottom lines are not hit by not giving antibiotics mm. would go quite a long way for us as a charity it makes sense for us not to give yeah. medications yeah. out that we're giving out for free and um, saving the charity money <laughs> <which> is why <laughs> we focused on it so being able to reduce antibiotic usage from 45% of animals walking through our door for treatments, 28% over the last five years that's brilliant. has yeah, saved yeah. us money. Yeah. And that's an easy business case to make, whereas yeah, exactly. in your commercial yeah. corporate world, whatever you want to call it, um, there have to be other drivers for that change, I suppose, yeah, that we so... need to get across to them. It might be good customer experience. The vets are taking more time to explain yeah. to me, so I've had quite a good experience here, yeah. even though I'm not walking out with antibiotics. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. So
5: it's, uh, it's interesting that um, it's anecdotal
3: from the more business world that um, a large practice group found that the poorer financial performers were the more frequent prescribers, yeah. uh, which is perhaps more reflective of maybe more limited workup, diagnostic options, yeah. and maybe that is tying into exactly what you're saying about yeah. providing the broader experience and justifying to the mm-hmm. client that yeah. actually this is not. That's trying to make money, it's no. actually yeah. the one who the
1: experience and then it's the relationship building and the trust. And so yeah. therefore,
4: when, there are, when there's a next issue, you come back in and you talk to that yeah. vet again. Yes. But we could use more vaccination. We mm-hmm. could use more diagnostic tests to make sure we know what's going on rather than just guessing and giving it antibiotics because they might be cheap. There are other things that we can do, I and mean, definitely from the mm. farm animal perspective, there's more management, biosecurity, mm. lots of other things mm. that we can change, but also true in companion animals and diagnostic tests to make sure we know what it is we're treating, we know what the disease process is, we can give a rational estimate of how long they're going to be sick, are they going to get worse before they get better, because mm. we have some diagnosis, not just kind of, guess it, give a jab, you know?
1: Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. yeah exactly. <laughs> okay.
4: So there are other ways I think practices can grow and do different things on the preventative side yeah. that are also good for pets. Yeah. And did you look at any of that in the PDSA Then did you
1: in- increase number of tests done, repeat uh, visits, both positive and negative things? We've things uh, well,
5: we over those over that period, we've we've kind of developed our antibiotic stewardship area. Mm-hmm for all all our our guys to go and look at and we've introduced four protocols that have got antibiotics at the heart of them Mm -hmm. as well. So I think it was a case of gathering that evidence, Mm. providing the reassurance, using protocol exclusion criteria. Mm. So if this is showing, then you're okay to give Mm -hmm. it. It's not what Mm -hmm. I a 100% here. Mm. And it is keeping away over the years at, at those habits. But I think the appetite for it has grown as a result yeah, of that. Absolutely. It is a conscious change yeah. over time rather than a quick fix. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. But you still achieved a phenomenal amount. Yeah. Right? yeah. still And yeah. like, yeah. that's, yeah. that,
5: that, that, that's, that's down the hospitals. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> buying into it. So yes, no, we were very pleased with the results.
1: And one thing, as we get near the end... The OIEs, the World Organization for Animal Health, active really in um livestock areas and animals that we trade. But there are also a number of other international organisations that um look at global um health problems and so on. Do you think there's more of a role for them? Should we could we link in more to them? Perhaps in this, um so we've been talking about the how Dutch have done it and things, mm-hmm. even just in sharing best practice and things like that, or or is it more let's focus on the UK and our own practices first and what data we have?
2: It's a global problem. Yeah. You know, Travellers, uh, exam- as an example, yeah. bring back, you know, the GI upsets with multi-resistant yep. bugs. Yeah. You know, so...
1: And if you look at, I perspective, that's a number of pets that actually oh, travel, yeah. travel yeah. out globally. Yeah, yeah. Massive. And, yeah. Eat some rubbish.
2: So <laughs> yeah. eat and, some leftover food. And I, I suppose you know, we see a number of pets that are um, rescued yes. from Romania, mm. Mexico. You know, we've got a... In fact, I was chatting to a vet from Romania yesterday about you know, trying to minimise the use in, in, in animals. Not, not you know, this is focusing on companion rather than farm mm, animals. Yeah. So uh, I know that the OIE and the WHO have kind of got a memorandum of Yeah, there's a tripartite, tripartite between tripartite. Uh, yeah.
1: OIE, WHO, and yeah. FAO. Lots yeah. of abbreviations, struggling with, <laughs> <laughs> struggling with all of them.
2: If they can come up with you know, um, consistent messages that then mm. seep down, yeah. then that's that's going to be better for the whole. Yeah, you know, because yeah, what Sweden's doing, what Holland's doing, fantastic. But if you look in other parts of the world, you know we um, BSABA have sent loads of the Protect guidelines to charities in India who are mm-hmm. educating vaccines right. in yeah. India, which is fantastic. Yeah. But that's an area where you know you can get any host of antibiotics just on the you know, in, in normal shops. So you know it's it's a
5: global problem. So their yeah. the role is really important. I think each of those organisations will have. Elements of messaging, evidence, um, or collateral or you can use with patients that that can be used. And if you can if you can show we are we have a common goal mm-hmm. with these global organisations, yeah. but it is also applicable within our own little country. Then that that's that's quite a powerful yeah. message right. as well. We mm-hmm. used some of the OIE stuff in the European Antibiotic Awareness Day because they did some yes. quite quite mm, good yeah. little animation. Yeah. Yep. Um, things thing. there as well. So yeah. but, but and they've done really quite a lot of
1: work on the um, social
4: behaviour side and you know drivers and things that yeah. can be translated. And then again, if the UK is doing a great job, being able to showcase that on a world yeah, stage it is. is really nice. And go mm-hmm.
5: yeah, both ways. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And,
4: and th- seeing how other people have done it in different countries mm-hmm. where the challenges are slightly different, but sometimes the idea is you see something that someone in India has done and think, "Oh, that's a great idea, and I could yeah. do that here." You know, even though we're quite different cultures, I could yeah. institute that in my yeah. practice. So, being able to share that would
3: be—I yeah, think it's a sharing of ideas, right? From you know, having those red antibiotics at the top shelf, yeah. all the way mm-hmm. to these wide-scale, you know, randomized control trials. Exactly. Anywhere in between to be able to
5: actually say, "This is what I'm doing." Yeah. Hmm. What do you think? And can you improve on that? Mm. Um, mm. one, one thing that, that cuts across it a little bit is the World Health Organisation um, have got their AWARE categorisation mm. of antibiotics. Mm. Um, and if you look at the access list, then that's pretty much the list that are on a lot of um, veterinary practices' shelves. But availability of some of those Oh, um, access medications mm. has been an issue in the last couple of years, and you wonder what behaviours that's driving. As all well, the trimethoprim sulfonamide's mm. gone off the market altogether, which was a mainstay, yes. um, first, first 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 line um, antibiotic. There's been issues with oxytetracycline um, availability as well at the last few years, and you do just wonder whether some of the industry driven mm. um, uh, availability of some of those is driving some vets to use. Yeah. Antibiotics further down the list, yeah. yes. I can remember I at mean, least a couple of
2: years ago, we you know, we wanted to revise just making sure we had decent amounts of amoxicillin in, mm-hmm.
3: and it was more expensive to buy a pot of amoxicillin mm-hmm. than a moxiclav. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and I think the moxiclav message you know, you talk to medics yeah. and you say about the yeah. frequency of use well, of yeah. We kind of have a perception of being a fairly humdrum, normal yeah. antibiotic, but actually, yeah. it's not. <gasps> no, yeah. absolutely. You're quite worried. But yeah, yeah.
1: So we've talked about um, working with uh, human organisations, One Health Approach, kind of globally and nationally. But does anyone have any examples more regionally? So I understand there is one in the
4: southwest. west maybe we're yep. involved Cornwall, in that Cornwall yeah. Antibiotic Resistance Group. Yeah. So they brought together medics, pharmacists, veterinarians as well and mm-hmm. tried to get data off veterinary practices to benchmark oh, yeah. and again great. i think you run into this issue where they're all independent businesses and yeah. so the nhs their data is open and they can <laughs> share that and they can know that whereas the businesses felt a little like not so sure. yeah. I want my neighbour <laughs> knowing what i'm doing here but there are a number i sit on a group in gloucestershire and a group in bristol that are those one mm-hmm. health and they're you know some it's, it's quite I would say the groups I sit on are quite medical heavy because there's so many more people. There's an antibiotic pharmacist at the hospital that that is their job to just say, yes, doctor, you can have that antibiotic, which we don't really have in the veterinary side, but maybe we should. Mm -hmm. But there's always quite a lot of interest. And when you think about the potential transmission routes and what's going on with animals. You know, people say, oh, but so I could be giving this to my uh-huh. pet who could then give it to my child, etc." Uh-huh. Yeah, potentially. And so I think there, it is quite interesting. And when we can showcase what we've done, they often say, wow, that's incredible because uh-huh. chief medical officer had to send letters to everybody, you know, and to, in order to try to change behavior, uh-huh. which hasn't really happened in the vet uh-huh. industry. But then we can showcase... What's been done, and, and I think it gives people confidence. So, I have a friend who's a pharmacist, and she sits on that group as well. And she said to me the other week, Oh, I was talking to a whole bunch of medics, and they all started to saying The problem is all the antibiotics they use in livestock, that's the real issue. And she said, I could stand up and say, <laughs> Actually, people, would you like to see the data? Because my friend Kristen has told me all about this, and they're doing an amazing job. So, I think it mm-hmm. helps that conversation about yeah. One Health to know yeah. that we are also carrying yeah. the baton and we want to do a good job
2: mm-hmm. also. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah so that, really that is cool. quite fun.
4: And I think those will pop up elsewhere yeah. and I'll just knock on someone's door and say, well, where are the vets? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> if you do that as well, I think yeah. I've found that they're, they'd like to include you and you always get very interesting questions from yeah. people that say, well, I've never even thought about that mm-hmm. in the vet. But yeah. they've got medics as well that will go out and do point of care testing in homes and that sort of stuff again we do some home visits do we have diagnostic kit that we can take out and do mm. that in the homes you know when we're doing those sorts of visits there are mm. really interesting things I think that are happening on the human medical side that we mm. can also incorporate Could and you, say let's use this you've
2: touched on some actually which would be another fantastic area of, of research is looking for biomarkers that I know in humans, um, procalcitonin levels go up with pneumonia. Yeah. Um, so some hospitals are using procalcitonin measurements to justify whether somebody with respiratory signs gets antibiotics. On yeah. Them. You know, you, there's people developing urinary tests where you can, you know, in half an hour do a colour change to see if there's bacteria in yeah. the urine. Mm-hmm. Debate whether you treat it or not. Any, you know, yeah. they're symptomatic, mm-hmm. but looking for those quick tests that. You know, in the consultation yeah. mm-hmm. can can justify not giving antibiotics to be a massive tool. Quick and cheap. I think Quick and well, yeah. cheap. cheap, 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 cheap That's the best yeah. Best yeah. challenge. challenge. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> yeah. so. It's making sure
3: that these new developments make their way across. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's mean, like the, um, I don't know if you've got the longitude price, which mm. is uh, this idea of creating a point-of-care diagnostic test for resistance, which okay. mm. it's got an impossible set of guidelines deliberately, so it has to be not using electricity, I think, yeah. under a dollar a test... Wow. It needs to be less than 30 minutes. Uh, it's, it's amazing. But yeah. the, the idea is that they don't expect anyone to get there by in the wider reach into the top. Yeah, you'll some, yeah, will get, get some yeah, more yeah, get close. Uh, Absolutely. And um, it's, it's just making sure that these ideas do actually Keep calculate.
5: Because mm-hmm. uh, yeah.
4: it will get faster and it will get cheaper and yeah. there will be more of them Absolutely. if the demand yeah. is there. Yeah,
5: yeah. You have touched on something there, though, in terms of the community approach can be very powerful. Yeah. So there's lots of people that are very influenced by what's happening in their own own community and what the members of their community are, what messages they're getting and sharing it amongst themselves, whereas some national headlines, guidelines, expectations, Mm. whatever, uh, doesn't land, doesn't land. So people influencing each other within communities to not ask for antibiotics or, or gaining that understanding of why it's not being given mm-hmm. yeah. is probably an area that, that we could and should lever quite a lot more yeah. to, mm-hmm. uh, to get to where we need to.
4: So in Gloucestershire we had some students actually at a competition we got students to produce a message that has gone on the back of buses and throughout the mm. community and part of that because wow. of the one health issue yeah. is wash your hands after you touch your pets yeah. this is a good idea yeah. so and that was because I I was sitting on that committee they said we really want it. it's one health and we really yeah, want yeah. the one health so what can you tell us about one health you know yeah. what is what is probably going to resound with members of our community well this is just quite a good biosecurity sort of thing and preventative so, measure yes. so that went on so it's on not the, just
1: being a stewardship champion in your practice it's being a community, community champion. champion exactly yeah, yes.
2: yeah and that's something you could kind of challenge other organizations are doing a lot of good work yeah. yes focused on vets, but actually you know or do I name names to try and drop them in it? <laughs> but you know, large groups of yes. organisations or large groups of practices could mm. you know we could challenge them to actively promote responsible use in their pets. Yeah. And yeah.
3: I guess it's it's a broader thing than responsible use. It's yeah. about public trust in pets. Yeah. Were seen as community champions who um, are yeah. as focused on public health as on veterinary mm. health. That's yeah, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. That's really cool. So I yeah. think that's a really good place to finish
1: this <laughs> chat on. And um, thank you so much for your input. It was really exciting.
0: It was so exciting. I think I want to go back to practice. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks. A great many thanks to all our participants today: Christine Middlemiss, Kristen Raya, Ian Bassby, David Singleton, and Steve Howard. For more podcasts from RCBS Knowledge, find us on iTunes, Podbean or go to our website at rcbsknowledge.org.